thank you for joining us on The Skeptic Psychic, where we delve into ancient societies, the ghosts, the paranormal, UFOs, all looking at it from the perspective of the true believer and from the skeptic perspective. Joining me, my partner, my co-host, my sibling, Kimber Rodriguez. Myself, I am Richard Gregg. And again, let's look into being the skeptic psychic. Shame, 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 shame on me. I'm so sorry. I had some personal business to take care of. And here I am after my personal business was taken care of. You can beat me with a wet noodle later. Promise? Huh? Promise? Bring forth the great spaghetti monster. Woohoo! Do you have your colander hat ready? Yes, I do. <laughs> okay. So, despite the personal business, how are you doing tonight? I'm doing fairly well, you know. Possible, uh, you know, as a Papa used to say, uh, I'm fair to Berlin with a slight chance of rain, partly cloudy tomorrow. That makes sense. So. so, any news this week? Anything you'd like to share? Uh, let's see. Sharing is caring, but uh, I don't know. Ah. Do you have anything to share? Um, not much on my end. Just um, favorite time of the year, that spooky season. So, I'm excited to get into our third episode of the spooktacular this month and it's the most wonderful time of the year <laughs> you got ghosts are booing and people are squealing because no one's in here it's the most wonderful time of the year hello um i'm assuming that's raymond, Ray it's raymond. yes how are you this evening raymond hope you are well and why don't we share what we're talking about tonight? We're sharing uh, what we like to call the Hollywood movie curses. Now, we could just talk about, you know, the different scripts and actions that uh, that have happened on, uh, while filming. But we're also here to discuss the other type of uh, Hollywood movie curses, you know, the mysterious deaths, the... Uh, Shelly here. Hello, Shelly. Which, uh, my Shelly, your Shelly, everybody's Shelly. Everybody's Shelly's here. <laughs> my Shelly. Well, our Shelly, I guess you could say, but not the same Shelly you're thinking of. <laughs> okay. We have two Shellys. Shelly with an S and Shelly with a, with a C. C. Yes. <laughs> so, yes. So, we're oh, talking. Oh, my. About <laughs> yes, we have lions, tigers, and bears, too. <laughs> so, I, um, yes, we're talking about movie curses tonight. Sorry, I need to turn my fan down. It's getting a little cold in here. We are talking about movie curses. Um, some you may be aware of, some you may not be, but it's going to be fun and interesting. So why don't we kick it off? All right. I'd be more than happy to kick it off. But like, before we do, I want to say it's a joy, pleasure, and wonderful to actually have this intelligent, savvy, highly motivated sister of mine, Kimber Rodriguez, Rodriguez, joining me tonight. Yes, and my wonderful, can't really say favorite, because some people might get offended, but 
my wonderful, loving, adoring, caring brother, Richard Gregg. Yes, she's my favorite sibling. Yes, you're not afraid to say it. <laughs> nope. I can say it without any problem. <laughs> so why don't we kick it off tonight? Alrighty. Oh, before we kick it off, um, I do want to thank those that are uh, viewing here on Facebook, Twitch, or YouTube. Um, if you're viewing on YouTube, make sure you like and subscribe and hit the notifications so that you know when we are um, on when we're on, so you can catch our videos. And if you like what you see, please leave us a review on either Apple Podcasts, Audible, wherever you're listening. How many stars do we like? Uno, dos, tres, cuatro. And Cinco, yes. See the mysteriously disappearing hands. Ooh, five stars is what we like. We like five, but we'll take whatever you not, give us. Not three, not four, five stars. Yes, we do like five, but we'll take whatever you give us. Um, also, if you leave a rating, please review us. We'll read your reviews on air so you can get a little shout out. And... Yeah, so let's kick it off. I apologize I interrupted you before. All righty. So shout out to uh, we Again, if you're on our Facebook, uh, uh, on our Facebook, please, I still, since we've started, I would love to have us have something that we can call our fans besides the peanut gallery. Because, you know, us going into Buffalo Bob, you know, and howdy duty. Don't forget, Shelly, who puts your names now? Who's who's commenting? <laughs> yes, that does help. Thank you, Raymond. <laughs> okay, on to the curses. Alrighty, so let's get serious for a second and say that Hollywood has a long and rich history of filmmaking. Even the switch to digital hasn't ended the need for actual film reels as many still believe film stock is far superior in quality than shooting in digital only. Considering that the average film reel originally only contained 11 minutes of watchable program, laid out that one reel would stretch over a thousand feet. Given the average movie was about an hour and a half, that's roughly a mile and a half of film. Theaters rented their movies as they were shown on the screen, and the amount of film copies needed grew exponentially as the popularity of theaters boomed. And on all the scenes that hitting the cutting room floor are multiple takes just to get that precise shot. It's hardly surprising that the estimate that the amount of film used in Hollywood's lifetime up until now could easily stretch to the moon and back multiple times and possibly to our sister Mars and our sister Venus. Somewhere hidden amongst all those hundreds of thousands of reels is where we find ourselves today. Not, necess not necessarily seeking out the scariest movies ever, though there is something to be said about how filming the supernatural seems to draw it to the set. But we're talking about today of haunted sets, spooky happenings behind the camera, the tragic toll Hollywood has wreaked on its actors and crew. Most likely, we would hear all about the curses that follow certain play productions. For example, Shakespeare's play Macbeth 
also if uh many people who have uh uh that have worked it have they don't call it that it's just been the play because it's been cursed since the very start as folklore say a coven of witches objected to the bard using real incantations within his story so they put a curse on it for example the actor playing lady macbeth died horribly on opening night in 1606 which caused shakespeare himself to have to step in and fill the role other mishaps of that first production include real daggers being used instead of stage props during the murder of king duncan scene which resulted in the actor's death it's been a plague ever since the rivalry between the actors who play Macbeth in different productions to cause a riot at the Astor Pat Place in New York City in the year 1849. At least 20 people were killed as a result and over 100 more were injured. Other productions have been full of accidents, including actors falling from the stage, mysterious deaths, and even Sir Lawrence Olivier's production at the Old Vic in 1937 was troubled as the actor was able to dodge a falling stage wage, which could have killed him. Even the play isn't being performed, it's still considered to say the name, Macbeth, while inside of a theater. Should you break it, it said you'd only immediately exit the theater, spin around three times, fit curse, and only then can you knock on the theater door to see if anyone will allow you back in. Wow, they sure take that serious, don't yes. they? <laughs> like I said, whenever you're working on that Shakespearean play, it is called, in production, The Play. Huh. But we aren't here today to discuss plays, be they by the bard himself or otherwise. Today we're covering film and all things, I'm sorry, and all of the horror that comes along with it. So without further ado, let's part the curtains push aside all the tinsel that tinsel town can throw and peer into the dark corners of sound stages and long since vacated location shoots. We'll even step into a casting office and hear of the movie that will never get made. Alrighty. I want my usher to escort me to my seat, please, because we're going to start off with a little more modern. Shall we? Yes. Sounds no? good. Yeah. Sounds right. good. Corporal Master Sam Raimi. The man who brought you such great uh, things as The Evil Dead, Hercules, Xena, and... The best Spider-Man. The second best Spider-Man. The best. The second. <laughs> okay. I'm, I'm a 70s guy. I like the Spider-Man movies from the 70s. Mm. Uh, I, I just really love his. I think he did a great job. Tobey Maguire was an awesome Spider-Man. But without further ado, continue. Yes, he also brought us Dark Man. Yes, I forgot about Dark Man. Oh my gosh. Well, yes. Let's start with something a little bit more modern The Possession. It came out in 2012 and was based on a real object called the Dubik Box. Dubik. Yes. The box in real life is a small wine cabinet. It is said to be seriously spooked, bringing bad luck and accidents. To the possessors issuing a foul smell within the building where it was stored and has been blamed for the death of a whole lot of mice and some aquarium fish oh, so poor mice keep, uh, keep your uh, keep your oscars uh, handy as well as your bed is 
The box is created with Hebrew symbols on the back, which is supposed to hold a debuff or display so looking to best another body. In order to accomplish this, it, it's his assigned task. The bad luck and catastrophes are said to be the creature's way of being passed on to another person and another until I can reach someone who can help it with its task. Um, Tom Holland is good. I agree. But I still prefer Tobey Maguire and Kirsten Dunst is a better Mary Jane, even though I think Tom Holland and Zenaida are a cute couple in real life. But I digress. Back to the Dybbuk. On the film set of The Possession, the crew had their fluorescent light bulbs blowing constantly. Bursts of cold wind would roar through the sets during the middle of a take, causing everything to have been reset and started over. The props were carefully stored away after filming, just in case some shots needed to be redone. The prop shed went up in flames and burned so hot and so fiercely that everything went with inside was reduced to ash. No traces of the electrical issue or arson were ever found for the burning. Also, actor Jeffrey D. Morgan, for you Supernatural fans or um, that other show he was in, Living, uh, Walking Dead or whatever, he was gone on record stating that he was very skeptical. But not only would I not want the box around to tempt fate, but there were enough weird things going on around our set that I have never seen happen on sets before. According to Morgan, the cast and crew had a sort of mantra during the production. Don't mock the box. Don't mock the box. Because the history of uh, the box itself was fascinating. Supposedly purchased at an estate sale from a woman who survived the Holocaust who had refused to open the box or other, let others claim it. She insisted the box, which is from Spain, needed to be kept closed, and the man who purchased it from the estate claims he gave it to his mother for her birthday, but it was quickly returned to him. He tried passing it on to others, but it would always be quickly, 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 quickly returned. Finally, listing it on eBay, selling it for a whopping $300 to a college student who claimed he and his roommates suffered all sorts of bad luck, including their fingers being broken several times. Wow. Yeah. The box even uh, wound up in uh, in the Haunted Museum owned by Zach uh, Baggins right there in Las Vegas. He had a quarantine special feature where he planned to open the box, even taking it out of his glass cape and videotaping it to see what the box would do. He claims a mist slipped from an unopened box, which enveloped him, that he determined it wasn't scary, but felt rather warm. As if the box accepted that Zack was its master. Right. Yes. Of course, in the end, he decided to leave it unopened, causing many fans to call him out on it. Now, in 2021, the man who listed the box on eBay admitted that the whole thing was a hoax. Kevin Manis is a creator, writer, and owns furniture restoration businesses. 
He claims he purchased the box at a yard sale at his local Portland area. He carved the back and added a lock of hair and concrete artistic piece that he had made. Created its elaborate backstory and then sat back to see what would happen, saying, I am a creative writer. The Dibbit Box is a story that I created. And the Dibbit Box story has done exactly what I intended it to do. When I posted it 20 years ago, which is to become an interactive horror story in real time. He does, however, also admit that along the way, he would add new elements to the story to help it evolve and keep it relevant and interesting. Now, you know, that's really interesting because I've always heard that this box is a of Jewish origin and it's used to like hold demons. Mm -hmm. So to find out that the whole thing is a hoax and falsified, that's just to me... Very interesting, you know, because we've always heard this is, oh, this goes back to, you know, ancient times and it's this Jewish box. And then to find out that this guy made it all up. It's a uh, bullshit. Yes. <laughs> Bless me. Bless you. Of course. Go on. <laughs> which is why, uh, which is all interesting. But why then did the cast and crew of the possession have such trouble on the set? Did they inadvertently pull some malicious spirit their way to plague them for the production? We'll never know. Could it have been a uh, publicity stunt of all set new pieces that are not either burned to ash or scattered to the wind? Or so dispersed and rotated from a warehouse to warehouse over the years as yet to be untraceable? It is truly skeptic believing that there's something more out there. Uh, 2011. The innkeepers, however, some seriously supernatural creepiness going on during its production. The story, which is about two employees of the Yankee Peddler Inn and how they expose it for its haunted past. Surprisingly, the Yankee Peddler is a real 52-room place in Connecticut that is really haunted. The director decided to go ahead and shoot at mind i'm saying at the exact location and he and the cast and crew were suddenly immersed in the bizarre happenings like doors opening and closing on their own tvs turning off and on whether plugged in or not the lights constantly being changed as if they would burned out though a check of the electrical system showed that there, no issues were worth the worry since then they were filming in the end. It was decided that everyone would just live on the location using whatever rooms that weren't in production. But everyone quickly began to have visual and vivid nightmares every night. The hotel itself is truly haunted with most reports centering around Alice, who is the original owner. Along with her husband, Frank, she built the inn over a hundred years ago still checks in on guests of her beloved aunt. Her old bedroom, which was 353, remains the most haunted spot in the hotel. And her rocking chair, which was kept roped off in the lobby with a sign warning visitors to please not sit in it, would often rock itself back and forth. Frank is spotted as a gray-haired figure in a dark suit in the inn's pub over by the old phone. Guests reported the same things happening as the film crew had, but also have claimed feelings of being pushed or pulled 
gently. And those who stayed in room 295 could feel someone climbing into their bed at night. Low whispers can be heard in guests' ears and odd smells come and go. Just another casualty to the Hollywood curse. And the same could be said of another cursed film that constantly crops up on our list. One of my favorites, the 1993 Crow. The Crow, not just the Crow. Crow. Well, yes, The Crow. An achingly brutal but beautiful story of a man and his fiance who are horribly murdered. Our lead in the film, actor Brandon Lee, was poised to become a big, a big star, just like his father Bruce. Things went wrong when a prop gun fired a round during a stunt, killing Brandon just eight days before filming was scheduled to end. Of course, there is more to this story. So perhaps if it was truly cursed, filmmakers would left a, uh, left a voicemail saying that bad things would happen if they went ahead and made the movie. On the first day of shooting, an electrician backed up a cherry picker truck that hit a power line stretched above him. He was electrocuted and caught on fire, rushed to the hospital, and treated with second and third degree burns. He survived, but both his ears have been, had to be removed. Sorry, I was just reading our notes here. Um, says the Dybbuk is a spirit, not the box. It is a Jewish spirit. The spirit will enter a person that has disregarded the Sabbath by working or selling. It is released through the pinky or toe. Interesting. Thank you for that information. Yes. I agree. Um, the Crow is one of my all-time favorite movies. Um, in fact, uh one of my first dates with Mercy was seeing The Crow 2, and it was a horrible movie. I went to see it with my little brother, and then I turned around and saw it again with Mercy. So that just proved how much I liked Mercy, that I went to see The Crow 2 a second time just to see it with him. <laughs> but anyway, back to the original. A carpenter drove a screwdriver accidentally through his hand. A stuntman fell through the roof of a set. A disgruntled crew member who had been fired drove his car through one of the workshops on the set. A hurricane destroyed the set. And that's when the media started spreading rumors of the curse. Some hinting broadly that Brandon's father had died under mysterious circumstances and that there was a family curse possibly involved. Now you come over to me and let me tell you a little something about the Lee curse. Mercy, hi. Yes. When the prop gun was used, that had a dummy round lodged in the barrel. I was going to tell you the curse, but you jumped ahead because somebody's like, Mercy, hi. I'm sorry. Go ahead. All right. According to the legend uh, dealing with the the Lee family, uh, Bruce Lee's real name is the effeminate little dragon in Chinese. It's usually used for for females because the firstborn, this goes back all the way to medieval, uh, medieval China. The firstborn of the Li family was cursed to die under mysterious circumstances, either by a dragon 
or an uh, evil mystic. That's where it's kind of cloudy. So he, uh, his, uh, Bruce Lee's father thought that it would be safe, one, to give him a feminine name, two, to have him being born in San Francisco uh, over in America. Uh, so that way it would break, he would not be uh, be born of a, uh, in the Chinese nation. However, because Bruce Lee kept getting into fights, uh, his parents kind of threw up their hands and like, look, okay, we need to get you out of here because you're getting into fights and we're afraid that somebody might kill you. So we're going to send you over to America. You are actually an American born because you're an anchor baby. However, when, uh, when it, uh, he actually, you know, he wound up having a successful Hollywood career, you know, well, somewhat. And so around the time that he was making Game of Death, which was his last movie, he filmed about 15% of it. And he uh, basically, while he was, uh, you know, they were uh, doing some rewrites, he complained of a headache uh, that he, he was having a migraine. His co-star gave him a, uh, some uh, aspirin and he, pa he passed out on, on her bed. You know, she left him alone, you know, headache, that sort of thing. And came back a few hours later, and he had a brain aneurysm and died. So, that's just uh, the interesting part of it. And so, that's when the whole, oh, he, the family's been cursed. Brandon Lee, of course, you know, becomes a, a, uh, a brilliant actor. Not only did he get to play Kwai Jane Kane's son in the the TV reunion movie Kung Fu. He also did another movie called Rapid Fire. And then his third movie, which he, he was going to star, the major headliner, The Crow, he got shot. So immediately, the curse pops up again. They've asked his sister, uh, you know, are you ever going to become an actress or anything like that? And she kind of looks and laughs and goes, huh, no. <laughs> so, yes, that is the uh, the uh, the Bruce uh, Bruce Lee curse in uh, highlighted. Now, interesting to note the um, aneurysm of Bruce Lee. There's been different theories as to how that could have happened. Um, it could have been either a counteraction with some other things that he had in his body at the time. Um, another is that he was rumored to have had his sweat glands removed. Now, why somebody would do that, I don't know. But this could have caused him to overheat. Um, and that could have caused the aneurysm, also dehydration. Um, so we don't really know exactly what caused it, but more than likely it was some natural cause. Uh, also, that, uh, I'm sorry to interrupt. He was no, also known to actually work himself to, uh, to to a point of exhaustion. I mean, he'd be stopped in the middle of traffic uh, in, uh, in L.A. and pull out a little uh, hand punch thing and go like this while he's waiting for the uh, 
for the traffic to move. So he was constantly working his body left and right. Yes. And we'll have maybe we'll talk more about the Bruce Lee curse on a another episode and go more into detail, but let's go back to the Hollywood curses. Um, back to his son, Brandon. When a prop gun was used that I had a dummy round lodged in the barrel, the blank rounds loaded in the chamber were enough to discharge the dummy out with the velocity of a real bullet. This struck Brandon in the stomach and he later died in the hospital after six hours of surgery. The script was quickly rewritten to try and work around the actor's tragic loss. Despite persistent rumor, his real death does not appear in the film, and the studio worked hard to see that any film did not make its way into media's hands. Now, um... Some say it was hard as surprising, considering the writer of the original comic wrote it as a way to cope with the death of his fiance at the age of 18, coming to terms with the loss of and finding closure. The story itself is based on a real crime, that of a couple being robbed for their engagement ring and then needlessly being killed. And a fun fact uh, for a moment of likeness after this start, did you know that the movie doesn't have a single crow in it? Instead, the animal trainer brought in ravens as they are similar in appearance but are nicer birds to work with. And he didn't even use that many there were only five ravens altogether used for the film. Um, and I do want to point out about this curse. This movie, though it is a huge cult following now, had a very, very small budget to work with. Um, they were pressed for time when, when making it because to get the realty effects of the movie, they would only film when it was raining. Um, there was a lot of negligence on the set due to the low budget. You know, they didn't hire the best people, unfortunately. A lot of careless things happened. So I think a lot of that has more to do with the sad case than an actual curse. What are your thoughts? Mm, I I think it, uh, the, curse it's, uh, the curse itself is a good way to drum up business to go see a movie that sort of thing you know uh it's tragedy yes bruce and brandon both uh dying at such you know when they're just going to become international stars yes they are not not they were ravens never more yes never more <laughs> so Okay, so now we're going to be talking about the one I think everybody's been waiting for. After all, who hasn't heard about the Poltergeist Curse? The 1982 classic horror movie focusing on a suburban middle-class family that are being attacked in a series of vicious paranormal events. The film, based on its spooky beings on the house being built on an old Native American burial site, but what should have been just another popcorn thriller had its share of horror beyond the scenes. Four cast members died during and shortly after the popular trilogy ended, with being too considered especially puzzling. So it's no wonder that people want to say cursed gets tossed around with this one. 
The focus of the movie was a young girl played by adorable blonde and cherubic Heather O'Rourke, who was just six years old when the first movie hit theaters. At 11 years old, she was misdiagnosed with Crohn's disease in 1987. She was ill again the next year, but her family was told it was just the flu. The next day she collapsed when her heart stopped. She died in surgery where it was discovered it wasn't Crohn's disease at all, but a congenital intestinal issue where her bowels would become obstructed. Mm. Dominic Dunn, who played the older sister Dana in the first movie, left her boyfriend. He eventually returned asking her to take him back. When he refused, he grabbed her by the neck and choked her, eventually leaving her lying in the driveway. The ex-boyfriend, John Sweeney, was not only sentenced for, to six and a half years in prison, but was released even before serving even four of them. And the third death was that of the evil preacher Kane, who was in the second movie. Julian Beck had been diagnosed before filming with stomach cancer, but went on to work in the film anyway. He passed away shortly after he finished work on the film. Real-life Native American shaman Will Sampson died after film ending after the second as well. But his death came from kidney failure right after having a heart and lung transplant. It doesn't help with the scariest factor that Sampson performed a real exorcism after filming Raft. Since that time, actor Richard Lawson who played Ryan on the first film, nearly died when the commercial flight that uh, the, he was on crashed in 1992. Out of 51 passengers aboard, 27 died. The last date of the death, Luke Perryman, who played Pugsy in the original film, was murdered in 2003 with an axe by an ex-con who wanted to steal his car. It was Joe Beth Williams who played the family's matriarch, Diane, in the first two films, who started claims that the skeletons used on the film were real and not plastic props. There you go, Raymond. I saw your comment, but I was getting to that. <laughs> According to Williams, Spielberg insisted on using the real thing as they were cheaper to procure than bringing in manufactured skeletons. Yes. So, interesting to note, uh, getting off topic here for a second, uh, back in 1977, 78, uh, an episode of the uh, $6 million man uh, was uh, done at a uh, park in, Calif uh, in Southern California. And when they had filmed this scene inside of a uh, one of those uh, fake haunted houses, they actually discovered a real skeleton. Now that real skeleton, yeah, honest to true, they actually got a, uh, they did an autopsy on it, discovered that uh, this guy was basically a, uh, at one time, a bad guy, uh, an out, uh, a bad guy, let's just say that. <laughs> and he was, uh, when his body, when he was executed, his body was sold to a, a sideshowman. Who would take that body around uh, the state saying, you know, this was what happens if you, you know, you're a bad person, you know. And 
it just disappeared until that one episode of Six Million Dollar Man where they discovered it inside of a uh, the haunted house. Now, I can give you a little bit more information later on on that, but I just like to bring that up because yes, there there has been actually a real human skeleton used on a TV show slash movie. Yes, um, I also want to point out that a real experience of, you know, in the first movie where they talk about it being built on a graveyard and the tombstones being removed. This actually did happen to a neighborhood in Houston, Texas. They did a TV movie, I think, called Secrets from the Grave or something like that based on this. And it was this entire neighborhood in Houston that they built on a graveyard. They left the bodies. They just relocated the tombstones. So, you know, it's very interesting how not that anything as terrifying as what happened in Poltergeist happened in this town, but they did have some weird occurrences as well there. So it's funny how uh, movies can mimic real life, vice versa. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Elmer McCurdy, I think, was the mummy's name. That sounds familiar. What do you think, Richard? Yes, Elmer McCurdy. Yes. Anyway, let's get back on our topic. <laughs> Alrighty, sorry, I just got off topic there. Because, oh, not uh, a problem. Because Gil Keenan, who shot the remake in 2015, had a strange experience as well. They had persistent and repeated equipment failure, but only in the group of houses they were shooting in. Equipment taken out of the area all worked just fine. GPS failed to work for uh, the aerial drone photography and the lights would blow up that had been working only a few minutes before. And in fact, the things on the new set became so unsettling they eventually brought in paranormal analyzer Brenda Rose to clean the set before, from the evil energy. Now we're moving on to another creepy movie. How about the 1976 The Omen? This one had some seriously creepy issues that just don't add up to mere coincidences. While absolutely tragic, we do not believe that the fact that the Gregory Peck's son, TV news journalist Jonathan Peck, committed suicide right after his father accepted the role has anything to do with this curse. All for you, Damien. All for you. Depression can happen to anyone at any time and is truly devastating for any family. Chalking his up death up to a movie curse just cheapens the loss for this poor family and to Jonathan's four surviving siblings, not to mention the damaged car, I'm sorry, the damaged war cause on a person. Jonathan had served in the Vietnam War. In fact, another of Gregory's sons, Stephen Peck, who also served in Vietnam, went on to become a documentary filmmaker about the war, as well as continues to work assisting homeless vets today. As far as movie curses do go, however... When Gregory Peck flew out months later to start filming, the plane he was on was struck by lightning, causing the plane engine to catch fire, and the plane nearly crashed. The screenwriter, 
David Selsner also had his plane hit by lightning, as well as the producer, Mars Nidfield's flight, all three on separate occasions. These were precursors to this apparently when advertising except Bob Munger approached producer Harvey Bernhard with the idea of making a movie involving the Antichrist. He cautioned Bernhard, though, that the subject should be treated with caution, as Munger gave warnings that he thought the devil wouldn't want him to make the picture, saying, If you want to make this movie, you're going to have some problems. If a devil's greatest single weapon is to be invisible, you're going to do something which is something that's going to take away his invisibility to millions, and he's not going to want that to happen. Bernhard would later recall the devil was at work, and he didn't want that film made. Sorry, I don't do accents as well as my brother. Um, Bernhard actually wore a cross on the set during filming, a small plane was hired for an aerial shot, but the plane was switched out at the last minute. The plane crashed on takeoff, killing everyone that was on board. Mark Neufeld, who had already survived his plane crash being struck by lightning, was staying in a hotel that was then bombed by the Irish Republican Army, though both he and his wife survived the bombing. A Zune scene shot near a group of wild baboons apparently sent them into such a frizzy, frenzy, frizzy, frenzy, as soon as the young actor playing Damien appeared on the set. Actress Lee Rembrick, Damien's mother, was legitimately terrified during that scene captured on film. The baboons, however, got so agitated that an animal trainer had to step in for the safety of the cast and crew. The baboons eventually calmed down once the scene was over and the cast departed. The poor animal trainer, however, was killed instantly by one of the zoo's tigers the very next day. Mm. Mm -hmm. Animal trainers did not do well on this film at all, as the trainers of the Rottweilers used on the film were attracted by the dogs. Though up until that point, the dogs were friendly and loved to lick the cast members and play with them. Did somebody actually really get decapitated? We'll have to look into that. We'll give you that answer uh, possibly sometime uh, tomorrow, Raymond, or maybe even next week. Yes. I mean, the show had a special pre-release date screening of 6676, as it was the closest they could come to get that number of the beast. A special effects wizard, John Richardson, who had just finished his part in the film, including that of a gruesome decapitation. There it is. <laughs> got, in trouble, uh, got into a car accident on his next production, A Bridge Too Far, with Richard Anborough. John survived uh, the accident, but his assistant, Liz Moore, was beheaded. So it was on Bridge Too Far, not uh, The Omen. So thank you, Raymond, for that comment. That is very interesting, though. In a spooky tie-in, the local officials noted that the distance to the near town of Omenin, which is uh, surely, which is sure is pronounced Amen, which is exactly 66.6 kilometer from the site of the accident. 
That is pretty, pretty Interesting. creepy. Interesting. Yes. Just the same. That's incredibly creepy. Alf Joint, who had been a stuntman on the Omen and followed Richardson to the shooting of A Bridge Too Far, was hospitalized after a stunt went wrong. He was supposed to jump from a roof onto an airbag, but the camera caught him moving strangely before he fell, where he missed the airbag. After regaining consciousness in the hospital, he claimed something invisible pushed him violently from the roof. By this point, Bernhard was openly pointing out the film's myriad of accidents, claiming that a demonic figure was shadowing the cast and crew to inflict pain and misery on them. This is regarding mainly as a publicity stunt, as the studio soon joined in claiming satanic interference as the movie was approaching its release. Now, for some years, people wondered what became of little Damien. The actor uh, portraying it was a uh, Harvey Stevens. As Hollywood claimed, he vanished. An AMC special in 2001 on The Omen Legacy even hired a private eye to find him, but such no luck. Which is funny, considering that the, the, the 2006 Omen remake with Julia Stiles and Lee Schrieber had no but, uh, bad luck on set, and even had, ladies and gentlemen, drum roll please, Harvey Stevens in for a small role as a tabloid generalist. Hardly disappearing at all. He even had a small role in the 1980 made-for-television film Gogan the Savage, but spent most of his time as an animator in England. He even told Howard Stern in 2008 that he just started appearing in Boris Horror's conventions accompanied by a small tricycle. Now, sadly, in 2017, he was involved in a road rage incident in England where he ended up pulling over and beating two bicyclists that he felt were blocking the way. The cyclists were traveling separately and one had just pulled alongside in order to pass when Stevens overcame them in a narrow roadway. Honking wildly at them induced one cyclist to flip the middle finger at Stevens, though he, he did pull over to the side of the road to get out of Stevens' way. Stevens instead pulled over, hit the man who flipped him off, knocking him unconscious. When the second bicyclist tried to intervene, second bicyclist tried to intervene, he was pushed, I'm sorry, he was punched repeatedly, not pushed, <laughs> not only damaging his teeth, but breaking his helmet as well under the severity of the attack. Stevens received a suspension. I'm sorry. A suspension Stevens, would be good as a jail sentence. <laughs> he received a suspended jail sentence and was ordered to pay restitution to both cyclists. So was the omen cursed? It certainly had more than a share of troubles, though it was certainly made the future and fortunes of the lead cast, director, and the studio. Furthermore, the three sequels it inspired seemed to have trouble three sets. So if the devil was truly upset, he didn't appear to stay that, that, that way for too long. Now, I have to admit, the third movie to me was the most terrifying, where he was grown up. Um, there was just so much sacrilege in that movie that it 
truly terrified me. That's all I got to say about that. Yep. Now let's move on to the 2013 film. Shelly, did you see a tricycle on from the movie set reunited with a child, uh, a child actor uh, article? Or did you? <laughs> you got to remember this runs a couple of minutes behind, so it takes some time to catch up. <laughs> All right. <laughs> so we're wait, so while we're, we're waiting for her to respond, there we're going to go on and talk about the Conjuring. After all. Oh, she said she saw it on the P on the computer. Oh, on the PC. Okay. okay. Now, okay, awesome. Yes, if you could share that with us, that would be great. Thank you. Now, The Conjuring, after all, is based on the paranormal hauntings that should likely draw some kind of attention. Surprisingly, there wasn't a whole lot that seems to have happened on this one, despite it making a lot of cursed film lists. Apparently, Vera Farmiga, who played real-life paranormal investigator Lorraine Warren, was so scared about making the film that she refused to take the script into her home, leaving it instead outside. Still, she claims she woke up one morning to find three slashes on her laptop screen which disappeared before she could show them to anyone else. Right. Yes. How convenient. Yes. The Perone family, who were the ones actually affected by the hauntings, would talk with the screenwriters on the phone. Though static would often interfere with the conversations, or sometimes the line would disconnect. Hardly convincing. Carolyn Perron, however, says that even though she was now living in Atlanta at the time of the production, felt an odd presence in her home. She somehow fell over and wound up going to the hospital. Shortly after this, the cast and crew had to evacuate their hotel because of the fire. Lastly, it is said that when the family visited the movie set, it said a strange gust of wind followed them around the set everywhere they went. The film crew especially noticed that the trees just crossed the, per uh, the parents weren't moving at all, no matter how strongly the wind around the family grew. The movie's director became spooked of stating in his the movie director became spooked, stating in his office late his dog kept growling and what could only be unseen entity across the room. James Wan reported even getting up and investigating, but could never find anything over there that could possibly be antagonizing the dog. Convincing? Well, it seems so to those who were there. But reading this out loud, it just sounds like a bad phone connection, an unfortunate hotel fire, and people giving themselves the jitters. Now, I yes. kind of do want to point Neal. out... Sam Neill, yes, did go on to become uh, uh, in Jurassic Park uh, 2, as well as the newest one. Yes, and he was also uh, in Merlin. Was, yes, uh, basically he was he was the adult uh, Damien in the nineteen ninety three. I mean, the nineteen eighty version of the Omen three, playing Damien as an adult. Yes, I do want to point out that um, about the the house from The Conjuring, I did see an episode of it on Kindred Spirits. 
great show, not affiliated, just one of my favorite shows. And they did go on to, they did go to this home and they brought the parent family back. Those who would return the mother says she would never step foot in it again. So she wasn't there, but the daughters were, and it was actually quite creepy. Um, they talked about some of their experiences as well as some of the things still going on there. And oddly enough, about a year or so after that episode, the house went back up for sale. So I guess maybe it was a little too much for the new owners to handle still. Who knows? Well, how about uh, another film based on the Warrens uh, investigations? The 2014 Annabelle is based on a spooky Raggedy Ann doll that the Warrens keep in a glass case as she is said to move around. Annabelle, the film, uses a subtly crude, creepy doll as the makers of Raggedy Ann uh, refuse to allow them to use the doll's likeness. The director, John Linetti, claimed that during the movie, it has been seen three fingers drawn through dust on the set multiple times. The reason why this is so terrifying to him, the doll used for Annabelle only had three fingers. Now that's very interesting because I always wondered why they didn't use a Raggedy Ann doll since that's actually what Annabelle was. Mm -hmm. So it's very interesting to find out that the creators of the doll refused to have it in the movie. And that's why they went for some knockoff creepy looking doll. Right. Um, but how about another? I'm sorry. Lost my train of thought there. All <laughs> there <right>. were also <laughs> There were also claims that when they were shooting one day in an old apartment building in Koreatown, the actor playing the demon walked into the green room before shooting and a complete light fixture fell down on his head. Otherwise, we really couldn't find anything horrific or supposedly cursed happening. And the Conjuring series has like eight movies to its universe now, with I'm pretty sure more coming. While we admit that the Warrens have had some truly scary uh, things happen around them, and we've done a discussion about them as well, we don't deny that Annabelle, the possessed raggedy dog, exists. We don't feel that there's any of the Conjuring series that's involved in any of the movie curses. Now, I, do, uh, I would like to reiterate that the stories I've heard about Annabelle, the real doll, have been just very much scary. So, it, she may or may not be, you know. It, you know, we're not sure about whether the stories are true or not. We've leave that with an open mind. We've not. Uh, when John uh, decides he's going to reopen up the uh, uh, the Warren Museum, we may uh, try to find a way to go there. Now, when you say John, you mean John Zaffis, correct? Yes, that is who I mean. Yes, I, you know, think it would be interesting if he were to relocate it to his museum or find a way to reopen it. Um, but yes, I would love to check that out and find out if there really is anything creepy to that Raggedy Ann doll. But now let's move on to another of curse in general, Superman. 
Um, it did pop up on at least two lists that we've come across. But there is supposedly a curse in playing the psychotic superhero. This one began with jo George Reeves, who couldn't find a role in anything else as the world seemed to be only seeing him as the man of steel. Tragically, his depression, he shot himself in his bedroom during a house party, wearing the iconic suit that made and broke him. Um, now, there's a lot of controversy around his death, whether he actually committed suicide or whether he was murdered. Mm -hmm. But it is also said that Christopher Reeves was also typecast and that the horseback accident that paralyzed him was part of this curse. In our opinion, Christopher Reeves loved playing the Men of Steel, but didn't really have a problem finding other roles to play, though none of them were box office smashes like Superman was. He went into directing and still continued to act even after his accident. Christopher Reeves was a man who had an unfortunate accident, but that didn't let him, that didn't stop him from doing what he loved. Yeah. What are your thoughts on this one? Because I know you love Superman. Oh, Superman. Uh, if you ever, uh, basically, uh, one of my uh, handles uh, online is uh, Steel Fanboy. Because I'm a big fan of three, uh, three steels. Uh, Superman, Remington Steel, and Michael Steel. From the Bengals. From the Bengals. Now, Christopher Reeve was uh, basically, uh, he could be a real jerk from one single play. Uh, he could also be one of the most generous and kind people ever. In fact, Robert Williams, may he rest in peace as well, talks about when they were in Juilliard together, Chris, uh, because he came from a nice family, would often, you know, they'd go out to dinner and pay, uh, he would pay for Rob Williams' uh, meals or, you know, help him get books, that sort of thing. And when Christopher Reeves had his accident, the first uh, the first thing uh, that happened was uh, that Rob Williams came to his wife and says, what does he need? I'll take care of the medical bills. I'll take care of any type of treatment to get him back up. And also, the uh, Christopher Reeves talks about the first uh, the first thing he remembers waking up was this doctor coming in with uh, floppy uh, uh, gloves, wearing a mask, talking in a really bad foreign accent. He couldn't place it, but saying, "I'm sorry, sir, we're going to have to go back in in order to get uh, get whatever's in there because I just lost my watch." Could you know? They had. Uh, that uh, his laughter set off the oxygen alarms. That the uh, nurses had to come in and make sure he was okay. Yes, um, they were actually uh, they were roommates in Juilliard, mm -hmm. weren't they? Yes. Yes. Tomorrow's going to be Mad Monday. Yes. <laughs> Wish it were and, a Sunday. <laughs> yes. That's my fun day. They did announce Conjuring 4 as well as The Nun 2, so we at least know that, uh, yes, the Warren movies are still going on strong. You know? Yes. Now, the same goes for the next entry, which is supposedly cursed, the 1939 Wizard of Oz. This one has so many myths and legends, legends surrounding it that it's just 
pretty much ridiculous. No, one of the Munchkin actors did not hang themselves in the film. So no, that's not what you see in the scene that is forever popping up on shows and specials. What you are seeing in the backdrop is one of the large birds on set simply lowering its head to the ground. Yes, this has been proven time, time and again. True, there were mishaps on the set. Directors came and went with rapid pace. Buddy Epson, the original actor who played the Tin Man, had an allergic reaction to the paint used in so it was switched by the time and the replacement actor, Jack Haley, uh, wound up with the eye infection due to the new makeup. Yes, there was a parate- uh, paratechnical issue that burned uh, the Wicked Witch, Margaret Hamilton, uh, her makeup contained copper oxide, which was flammable. So she did wind up with some burning on her chin, the bridge of her nose, her right cheek, and the right side of her forehead, and her right hand. However, none of uh, them were permanent. Her son double suffered from burns on her legs. However, that was permanent after sitting on a smoking pipe that was worked up to look like the witch's broom. Bert Mars' heavy and very real lion hide gave him little ventilation while filming under the hot lights. So he was constantly dehydrated, and Ray Bolger, who played the, ca- the scarecrow, even had makeup issues. The cloth-style makeup left marks on his face that took over a year to fade. Not fun, but that still doesn't make this curse. And people also like to add in Clara Blankdick, who played Auntie M. She would commit to suicide 22 years later. She had retired over a decade before and was losing her eyesight to blindness and had arthritis all over. On Palm Sunday in 1962, she tidied up her long-term room at the Hollywood Roosevelt Hotel, laid out her favorite pictures and press clippings, dressed in an elegant dressing gown with her hair nicely done, laid down on the couch with a blanket pulled over her to her shoulders, took a lethal dose of sleeping pills, and tied a plastic bag over her head. Oh my gosh, what a way to go. Yes. Oh my. Well, this is sad, and the suicide note is just heartbreaking. This has nothing to do with any such movie curse. Nor does the fact that Judy Garland herself would overdose seven years after Clara from accidental barbiturate poisoning. Nor does the fact that the year the film came out that Oz himself, Frank Morgan, was involved in a serious car accident. He and his son weren't injured, while his wife re-injured the same knee she had trouble with in the past, but their chauffeur was killed. Now, before I go any more dark, sad, Stuff. Let me tell you another uh, wonderful story about the Wizard of Oz. When Frank Morgan and the costumers were deciding on what jacket uh, for uh, the professor at the beginning of the movie was to wear, they uh, basically the director uh, brought in all these uh, jackets from a secondhand store in West Hollywood, and. This is true. This has been uh, verified. It's been associated. But when uh, they found the perfect jacket, 
wouldn't you know that the perfect jacket was once owned by L. Frank Baum, the man who uh, came out uh, and wrote The Wizard of Oz himself. Now, some people say, well, that's kind of malarkey, BS, that sort of thing. But not only Frank Morgan, the director, the producer, as well as the costumer, all verified the fact that the slip inside the jacket uh, was labeled L. Frank Baum, as well as his widow uh, actually stated, yes, this was his jacket at one time. So were there tragedies? Yes. Curse? I don't think so. And not only has The Wizard of Oz continued to delight audience for over 75 years, it appears it will continue to do so for years and years to come. Besides, uh, we do have another fact uh, on there. A couple fun facts couple. for you. Yes. Our, our researcher, my sister-in-law, I already knew that the horse of a different color was a range of horses of different breeds chosen for the phone's iconic sequence. However, she was amazed to find out that filming for each horse had to be done quickly as the ASPCA determined that jello crystals were the most safe thing to use to, as a dye for their coats. The problem, however, the horses enjoyed the sugary crystal so much they kept licking their colors off. And also, uh, uh, there was an eventual wedding, uh, thanks to the movie. The Tin Man's son, Jack Haley Jr., eventually married Dorothy's daughter, Ismaili, back in 1970s. So it was all not doom and gloom for this so-called curse set. Okay, so Haley and Millie only stayed married for five years. But you gotta admit, that story about the horses was incredibly cute. Agreed. Well, we've actually hosted an episode in the past where we had a roundtable discussion with, uh, I would say, our good friends, uh, the Go Ghostly Podcast, on the subject of the Animeville Horror. Both the 1979 and the 2005 remake continually pop up on lists of cursed films. But other than James Boland being not keen to star in the movie and being scared because while reading a pair of his pants fell off the hanger, causing him to jump out of the chair in a fright. We really can't find anything spooky happening on the set of the original film. Now, the remake, however, did have a body wash up on shore next to the set just before filming was due to begin. But given the nature of the ocean's currents, that in itself was hardly suspicious. However, according to Ryan Reynolds, the cast and crew would all wake up at 3.15 which is when the actual murders took place. Neither film, however, was made in the actual home, but rather was filmed in the other coastal towns with the houses used to remo and remodeled to resemble the real home that sits in Amityville. And... We'll chalk that up to peeping on edge due to spooky stories being told rather than from original evil being affected on the set. Now we're going into sort of 1983's Brainstorm. The only movie makes the list because it's still a mystery of the lead actress's death. Brainstorm, which stars Christopher Walken and Natalie Wood, 
was about a machine which allowed people to live out someone else's experiences, good or bad. The issue that Natalie, her husband, Richard, uh, Richard Wagner, and Walken were all went out during filming on Wagner's shot. Shouldn't that be Robert Wagner? Yes. Or Okay, that's what I thought. Go on. Sorry. <laughs> oh, no problem. Now, they all went out on uh, Robert Wagner's yacht. Not Richard, but Robert. Now, Wood, terrified of water and unable to swim, hated the yacht, but went out anyway. Apparently, drinking and some drugs going on before Wagner and Wood got into some sort of serious argument. She supposedly went to their room to go to sleep while the men stayed up and continued drinking. It wasn't until hours later that she was found to be missing and a search was begun. Eventually, her body was located floating and the investigation determined that Wood must have decided she wanted to row herself ashore on their little dinghy. And being a little drunk, fell and hit her head on the way into the water and no one had noticed as she had drowned. Now, going back to the... Uh... Uh, Madmeville Horror, Raymond brought up a very good point that Kathy Lutz uh, had actually uh, passed away the day that uh, the movie had been released. I've heard that uh, story also. And uh, I, I think she uh, actually had died maybe a what, week after or something like that. Uh, but I, uh, I did she uh her name uh she had changed her name one because she divorced george lutz and two she didn't want to be associated with the anime bill uh any incarceration incarnation of it so yes um You want to continue on about the controversy of Wagner or Walken? Yes, I can go ahead and continue that. The controversy continues to this day as neither Wagner nor Walken has come forward with anything useful. And Natalie and sisters insist that she was so scared of the water and had a terror of drowning that even drunk, she never would have risked getting into the dinghy, let alone roll herself to the shore all in one all in one night. The captain of the yacht's story has changed several times. First, he claimed the same thing as Wagner. Walken refused to discuss the matter that Natalie was drunk and she was going to her room and instead must have accidentally drowned. Years later, his story changed to say that Robert Wagner killed her and Walken knew all about it. Then, details kept changing. The captain insists that it's just because it's just so long since the incident happened, it's hard to keep everything straight. But his credibility is pretty much shot to everyone except for a wood sister. Yeah, I don't know. Walken's always been a little creepy Weird. to me, but yeah. yeah. <laughs> anyway, the production company was forced to hire a body double, delayed the film for years, and then quickly released it with no fanfare and let it die off. Yet another tragedy, but the only supernatural or cursing to it is Natalie's sister, Lana Wood, 
who claims her sister would never have tried leaving the ship while wearing her nightgown, and how Natalie once had a premonition she would die in the water. Just a tragic accident where no one really knows what or may not have happened. Um, somebody knows. Yeah. Somebody knows, but they're not talking. That's all I got to say on that one. Right. 1973's Exorcist, probably the most cursed film to actually hit any list. There are at least four deaths linked to the film, though so some say many as nine. There are several injuries on the set and a freak fire. The first death is Jack McGowan, who played a film who played a film director who was killed by Little Reagan when his neck is broken and flung from the bedroom window. In real life, Jack caught influenza during the London flu epidemic in 73 and died from complications. A woman with no previously skills, Ballistic Madros, who played the mother of Father Damien Carras, also died just before the movie uh, was released, with an inquest stating she died from natural causes. Hardly surprising considering she was 89 at the time. Barton Heyman, who had a small part of Dr. Klein, died 23 years after the film's release due to heart failure at the age of 59. This year, the news went out that Linda Blair had died, but it turned out it was just a hoax. Thank goodness. <laughs> Though she has been since added to the list of those curse, the curse has killed. Lee J. Cobb, who played William Kenderman, died of a heart attack at the age of 64, just three years after the film's release. Mercedes McCambridge, who voiced the demon in the movie, died of natural causes in 2004. Jason Miller, who played Father Karras, died of a heart attack in 2001. And Max von Sendow, who played Father Marin, died in 2020. Now, you know, looking at this, I mean, you could say that any movie is cursed because the actors have passed away. But I mean, it's just a part of life. People pass away, especially these people who have died years and years and years, almost decades after the movie came out. How can you attribute attribute that to the movie? It just, I mean, that's just life. People die. Yeah. Okay. And answer to your question, Raymond, uh, Miss Lutz died in 2000, uh, August 17th, 2004. And the movie was released in, uh, 2005 so she died before the movie was released so. as, as it is obvious from the dates most of these if not all are sad but cannot be attributed to some unholy curse it should be able to have us state the obvious but actors are not invincible they succumb to death. They succumb. They die. This <laughs> is strictly as everyone. <laughs> However, that freak fire does make you think. The set for Reagan's family home burned down at the start of production when a bird flew into a circuit box. The only part of the set to survive was Reagan's bedroom, where the exorcism would take place. Six weeks later, 
Once the set had been reconstructed, Jesuit priest Thomas M. King was called in to give the entire set a blessing, just in case. Now, as for injuries, Ellen Burstyn, who played Reagan's mother, wound up with a spinal injury after being pulled around the set while strapped to a harness. She was forced to use crutches for the rest of the production. Ellen does not blame this on any set curse, however, but rather remembers telling the film director that the crew was pulling too hard. Apparently, her concerns were dismissed with the director telling her the stunt had to look real. The next take, according to Burston, the crew member smashed her into the floor. She was in so much pain that she was screaming for them to shut the effing camera off. The doctor insisted that, yes, the stunt hurt, but she wasn't really injured. Linda, however, also claims that poor harness riggings led her to developing scoliosis after she fractured her lower spine. Footage she claims is actually still in the movie. After the release, claims of a curse simply grew. During a screening in Rome, someone claimed a bolt of lightning struck the church opposite of the cinema. An American woman was passed out uh, during the movie and broke her jaw successfully through the studio. While in UK, it claimed that uh, ambulance staff was kept uh, at its screening to help any distressed moviegoers. The studio kept filling column after column in, play, in, in the papers, claiming audience members were fainting left and right, and that some would make the aisles before vomiting excessively, and walking out droves from screening simply built upon the hype, making audience and uh, attendance simply grow. So what do you think? Is it all just bad, bad luck and marketing, or do you think there really is a curse at play for The Exorcist? Well, uh, Raymond, I have not actually heard about the guy in a, uh, in a hospital scene uh, being actual silly serial killers. So that is something we probably have to look up and uh, respond with, uh, possibly in our next video. But we can also talk about the uh, a wonderful uh, movie came on, coming out in 1956. It was supposed to be just a long line of John Wayne's phenomenal hits, unlike his previous movies. The Conqueror, Wayne, the Duke himself played Genghis Khan, even though he had a broad accent and no way to look like he was Mongolian. Yeah, Hollywood of the way back never let minor things like ethnicity get in the way of their productions as they preferred to keep their money-making actors churning out one movie after another. Wayne himself lobbied for the role, and after reading the script, feeling that a change of genre wouldn't diminish his audience as he was at the top of his game, at the point of his career. Sadly, The Conqueror failed to conquer the box office, though it certainly lined the pockets of the medical community, specifically that of cancer treatment facilities and specialists. Yes. The film was made around the modern-day St. George, Utah. However, they also made use of the surrounding locations near where nuclear bombs had been recently tested. 
Thankfully, the St. George and surrounding areas today are safe to explore and having many beautiful places to visit while you're there. Those places were still beautiful in the 1950s, which is why it was filmed there. However, many of the exterior scenes were shot in the Uslet Desert, which is about 137 miles, 220 kilometers for our people in Europe, downwind from the U.S. National Security Site in Nevada. In 1953, 11 above-ground nuclear tests were performed. Howard Hughes, who produced the film, even shipped 60 tons of area dirt back to Hollywood for research so they could recreate the realistic terrain to match location shots. Did they know about the nuclear testing? Of course they did. But the government assured both the studio as well as local residents that the testing posed no health hazards. And besides, shooting out in the middle of nowhere made for a cheap filming permit. Out of 220 film crew members, 91 developed cancer, while 46 of them died from it. When viewed in the timeline of an individual's lifespan, these numbers are fairly average among the general public. But the film's location shoots and how many felt that the Pacific film all wound up with some version of cancer. It was definitely felt that a link was there, especially after so many of them were wound up with uh, cancer developed so soon after shooting and while still considered at a young age than ever. The director, Dick Powell, died of cancer just seven years after the film was released. Of the main cast, Pedro Armendariz killed himself seven years after the release when it was discovered the pain in his hips actually stemmed from neck cancer that had spread down his spine. He spent months before his death filming the Bond film from Russia with Love while in great pain just to be sure his family had money coming in. He shot himself in the chest with a gun that had been smuggled into the hospital once he discovered the cancer was terminal. Lead actress Susan Hayward continued acting until her health deteriorated in 1972, 15 years after making The Conqueror. It was then doctors uh, found a lung tumor that metastasized into her brain. In three short years of fighting cancer, she would suffer from a seizure and die. Agnes Moorhead, better known as Endora, Endora uh, from the, the show Bewitched, second female lead, also died of uterine cancer the year before Susan Hayward's death. Moorhead was a staunch non-smoker, non-drinker, and a health fanatic. Even John Wayne himself wasn't sure if his lung cancer diagnosis was due to the film's location or because he was a heavy smoker. But he beat it in 1964 after the removal of his left lung and two ribs. Nearly 15 years later, in early 1979, he went in with what he thought were godbutter issues when the doctors discovered cancer in his stomach. His entire stomach was removed, and a few months later, part of his colon was also removed due to what appeared to be colon cancer. He died a few months later. While his heavy smoking, even after removal of the lung, and his heavy drinking certainly increased his cancer risk, to have three separate cancers instead of having one just mastizing 
to other organs is highly unusual. Two of Wayne's sons, Patrick and Michael, were also both diagnosed with cancer and both spent time with them, uh, time when they were young, with their father on the set. Still, the listing of those who either survived or died from cancer goes on further. I think the point has been clearly made, though. Not only was the movie a box office bomb, it was also the only one voted the worst movie of 1950s and has been seriously argued by critics as one of the worst movies ever made. Now, coming back to your question, Shelley, in 1967, there was the movie Rosemary's Baby. And it gets a lot of play as one of the most cursed movies to come out of Hollywood. While the film itself seemed to go on without a hitch, it was after it was released that horrible things started happening. The first was composer Christoph Komeda, who was the roughhousing who was roughhousing at a party and fell. He spent four months in a coma before dying without ever regaining consciousness. The same affliction that witches inflict on Rosemary's suspicious friend in the film. Producer William Castle received so much hate mail that he wound up in the hospital with severe kidney stones. In his delirium, he supposedly hallucinated parts of the film. Or hallucinated parts of the film. I saw hallucinated. Whatever hallucinated <laughs> means. You hallucinated, hallucinated. Yes. And <laughs> shouted about his urgings for Rosemary, for God's sake, drop the knife. While he survived the kidney stones and delirium, he never made another hit film. And then there is Roman Polanski, whose story has been told and retold. But for those who don't remember, here are the cliff notes. His girlfriend, Sharon Tate, had gunned hard for the leading role in Rosemary's Baby, but lost out to Mia Farrow. Apparently, Tate hung around the set and wound up appearing in the film without credit in the background of a party scene. Years later, a friend would quote that Tate was seemingly becoming obsessed with the occult, saying the devil is beautiful. Most people think he's ugly, but he's not. Polanski was out, out of the country at the time of July of 1969, while he was growing closer to giving birth to their child. August 8th, Tate was brutally murdered along with her unborn son and house guests. The public, as the movie was still playing in theaters at the time, likened Polanski's offering to his wife as a blood sacrifice for his Hollywood success. Other conspiracy theorists felt that the murders were part of a satanic score on the Beatles' White Album, as it was written was considered to be an unfinished, uncrinished, unchristianed meditation session that actress Mia Farrow apparently was present for. The, this rumor grows even stronger even after John Lennon, who was assassinated around a dozen years later, while standing across the street from the Dakota, which is where Rosemary's Baby was even filmed. Ira Levine, who wrote the original no novel while observing his own wife's ongoing pregnancy, didn't escape the curse either. Considering himself an aesthetic Jew, Levin was aware that he, what would he, oh, sorry, Levin was aware that what he was writing was going to be controversial, but wasn't expecting how bad it was going to be. The Catholic Church condemned his story for mocking the religious persons and practices. 
While Levin didn't believe in curses or witches, he appeared on a 1980 episode of The Dick Cavett Show along with Stephen King. He stated how, as a child, his aspirations to write horror didn't scare him at all. But now he was terrified. Steele, years later, he insisted he felt sort of a guilt for causing a popularity of the occult, witchcraft, and Satanism, though he openly dismissed people who believed in backwards messaging and song lyrics and the like. It didn't stop him, however, from slapping together a poorly planned sequel called Son of Rosemary, which sold well despite the poor reviews. It was the last book he ever wrote before his death. The Curse of Levine, perhaps being for the first acclaimed and then spurned for the same thing, he poked fun at himself as a sellout and a fraud, which in itself is incredibly sad. Yes, um, I've heard about the, um, the twist and the once upon a uh, time in Hollywood. Um, I haven't seen the movie yet, but I've read this, the twist that you're talking about, and it is quite interesting, I should say, but no spoilers. <laughs> now we go on to... Even before, you, even before you go on about once upon a time in Hollywood, my Spider-Man played Sam Watermaker in uh, Once Upon a Time in... Really? In America. Uh, yes, in, Holly in Hollywood. Interesting. Yes, my okay. Spider-Man. Uh, the best Spider-Man. I'll have to go back and check it out then. Now, Rebel Without a Cause was supposed to be the la latest hit to launch James Dean into stratosphere. Sadly, before the film was even released, he was dead in a car crash. Despite having racing experience, Dean could not help avoiding a 1954 Tudor making a left turn into his lane. It is thought that Dean tried to steer into what is considered a sidestepping maneuver, but didn't have enough room, and his new 550 Spider Porsche hit the Ford nearly head-on. A witness claimed the Spider smashed into the ground two or three times while doing cartwheels before coming to a rest in a gully beside the road. Dean suffered a crushed foot as has been caught between the clutch and the brake pedals. His neck was broken, and he had a massive internal and external injuries. By the time the ambulance arrived, he had already been pulled from the car by a nurse and other witnesses, and his passenger, who had been thrown from the vehicle, was barely conscious. Dean's cause of death was reported as a broken neck, multiple fractures of his upper and lower jaw, both arms broken, and internal injuries. His passenger survived after surgery to pair a broken jaw, serious in hip and femur injuries. The driver of the forts only suffered some facial bruises and a bloody nose. Dean and his passenger had been breaking the car in for an upcoming rally by hitting the road, artillery speeding and passing cars and slowing down to a rate that more than closely following the speed limit. At the time, he only owned the car for nine days. Despite reports saying Dean was racing along at the speeds of 85 miles an hour, it was later determined that he was going closer to 55 at the time the accident occurred. The Ford's driver stated he hadn't seen the low-profile speeder, spider, sorry, not speeder, spider, approaching when he turned into their lane and was absolved from criminal responsibility by a jury. Still, the accident haunted him for the rest of his life, and he died in 1995 from lung cancer. 
So what does this horrible accident have to do with the curse? Well, all three of the film stars would die far too soon. Salmoneo's career Salmoneo's career dropped off not long after he tried transitioning from a teen role to more adult things. He was eventually to make a potential comeback in, in a play, but was stabbed to death while on his way home from rehearsal. He had parked his car behind his apartment building in 1976 when neighbors heard him crying for help. A man was seen running from the, a man was seen running from the scene and Maneo was left with a deep chest wound. He died just months later, moments later, not months. And of course, we've already covered the beautiful Natalie Wood, uh, when she had drowned while out with her husband's yacht, along with her co-star. Yes, it's probably prudent to mention another curse here, though. It has nothing to do with the movie, but it is a popular one. And that is... And that is um, to those who owned pieces of Dean's maimed spider. The car was purchased by George Barris, who had customized the car and was known for designing both of the Batmobile as well as the monster's coach. For a while, Barris, who had loaned the car, which Dean had dubbed the little bastard, to the California Highway State Patrol to use in display to discourage speeding. Eventually, he sold the engine and chassis to two food physicians, car racing enthusiasts, a couple of doctors, and two surviving uh, surviving tires to young man from New York. There's been many rumors surrounding the death and destruction that has come to those who've owned and been close to the parts of the car. Well, here's just a just a few. Sorry, the two doctors who brought the engine and chassis were racing their cars when one of them spat out of control, wrapping the car around a tree and killing himself instantly. The other doctor was seriously injured when his car rolled while taking a curve in the same race. The New Yorker who put the tires on his own vehicle both flew simultaneously, sending the car smash into a ditch. A souvenir hound ripped his arm open while trying to steal the car's steering wheel where it was placed in storage. The Fresno garage that was housing the car caught on fire, destroying everything except for the car parts. In two separate accidents, trucks hauling the car's remains had fatal accidents. A third transportation truck that was parked on a hill had its brakes give out and it smashed the windshield of the car behind it. In two separate accidents, Okay. The Fresno Garage, okay, so uh, the car was on display in 1959 in New Orleans and fell into pieces without warning. After the New Orleans Barris had it shipped back to California, the car never arrived. Other than a restored passenger door, which Barris hadn't shipped to New Orleans, the rest of the car's whereabouts is completely unknown. It has been postulated that perhaps Dean's family members are holding on to the remaining parts. And from time to time, parts claiming to be from Dean's spider find their way onto the market. There is a reward still offered by the Volvo Auto Museum in Illinois for the missing car. 
But if you want to claim the million dollar reward, Barris himself has to verify the vehicle is authentic. So, question is, is Dean's car still out there? Or did it supernaturally disappear? Is it in the collection of the obsessed collector? Or did Dean himself merely claim what was his from beyond the grave? Makes you wonder. Mm. Now, the final movie on our list never made it onto the screen, big or small. There are thousands upon thousands of films that never make it past the scripting stage, even if they're good. For one reason or another, they just seem to keep cast or directors attached for one reason or another. In the case of the incomparable Atuk, a satirical comedy about an Alaskan Inuit who moves to Toronto, surprisingly has been one of them and is the most terrific of all. The film starts off at, with John Belushi attached as the lead. But he passed away from a drug overdose. The movie was just handed over to Sam Kinison, who demanded that the entire script be written. He was short. He was fired shortly thereafter, and almost immediately died in a car wreck. John Candy was given the role, but then died of a heart attack. Popular Saturday Night Live writer, who had merely discussed the film with Candy, died shortly thereafter from a brain hemorrhage. The film role was then offered. To Chris Farley, who died of a drug overdose. And then finally, to Phil Hartman. Um, yes, Shelley. Uh, it does seem like that was a fan spam bot. I apologize for that. <laughs> I did try to remove it. So I guess once we start getting fan pop spam bots in, that means we finally made it. <laughs> anyway, um, Hartman tragically was having marital troubles with his third wife, Bryn Omidal, who rather than let him leave her due to relapse into alcohol and cocaine abuse, murdered him in his sleep with a shotgun blast between the eyes, in his throat, and then in his chest. Omidal left the house and drove to a friend's house where she, commit, where she admitted what she had done. The friend, used to her outbursts and medic behavior, did not believe her. They drove back to Hartman's home where Phil was found dead. Her friend called 911, but Omidal barricaded herself in the bedroom and then killed herself with the same gun she had used on her husband. Now, to me, this is one of the, the saddest because I loved Phil Hartman and what he went through is just so tragic. Um, and I think if I remember correctly to that story, her ki the kids were actually there that night. So it makes it even more tragic. Yes. she. Uh, the last thing she did before, uh, the last contact she had with the police is, uh, uh, from what I heard, was she agreed to let the kids out of the house. And the kids came running out. And that's when they heard the, uh, the, sh the shot. The final gunshot. Yes. Um, yeah, I just, I loved Paul Hartman. He was, he was a hilarious guy. He was a great guy. And to die so tragically, just, yeah. All of these actors actually died very tragically. But to me, that one just hits the hardest for some reason. Yes, so. The in Incomparable Attuck. Do you think it's cursed? 
It has at one point or another interest other comedians who are still with this, such as Will Ferrell, Jack Black, John Goodman, and Joss Mostel. Apparently, Jonathan Winters, who died in 2013, was also interested, but he was never directly attached to to the piece, as well as Robin Williams. So, guys, what do you think of our cursed movie list? While you will find these on many list cursed productions, we do feel that not all of these truly belong there. We want to know your take, however. What movie surprised you or what films do you think we missed? Let us know as we'd love to discuss options and swap stories with us. You can always um, comment here on the chat or you can also comment on our YouTube page. Just make sure you like and subscribe. Facebook page. And our Facebook page. Um, you can send us emails at infoskepticpsychic.com if there's ever anything you would like to discuss or anything you'd want us to share on the show. If you'd like to be a guest on our show, let us know. Elvira dedicated her one movie to Phil. She actually made, I think, two or three movies, but that's awesome that she dedicated that to him. Yeah, I, th- I um, think it was uh, a Haunted Hills. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah I, um, uh, interesting to note, the reason why she uh, dedicated that movie to Phil Hartman was they were both in the group called The Groundlings, which is how Phil Hartman mm-hmm. and Cassandra Peterson uh, got their start. Another group of Groundlings were also uh, uh, two gentlemen by the name of Richard and Thomas. If I tell you their uh, last names, you'll go, you'll really uh, think it's pretty funny. What are their last names? Uh, Marin Chan. Ah. Reach Cheech Marin and Thomas Chong were also groundlings as well. Interesting. In fact, one of Phil Hartman's early movies was one of uh, uh, Cheech and Chong movies. Well, I got to meet Cassandra Peterson at um, years ago. My, me and our other brother, Jim Scott, were at Astroworld for their Fright Fest. And we saw this woman in full Elvira gear walk by and he's like, he stops her and he's like, excuse me, can I just tell you how much you really look like Cassandra Peterson? And she just smiled at him and said, well, that's because I am. And we sat and we talked with her for about 20 minutes. And I just have to say she was a very, very nice lady, very down to earth. And it's one of the most awesome experiences I've ever had meeting a celebrity. But we ask, um, we're glad that you enjoyed this show. And we're grateful that y'all tuned in. Yes, we are glad, very happy that you uh, come in as well. Next week special, we're going to be covering the origins of Halloween. It's going to be on Sunday, October 30th, which uh, if you know your uh, little bit about the uh, the holiday, that's the, basically the uh, Day of the Dead or Sam Hain. Sam Hain, or even uh, what you would call, I believe it's called... Uh, Prankster's Night or something like that up up uh, north. Uh, and then, check it out. 
we really would like to see you. And then not to be missed, we will have an episode Halloween night, which will be a very uh, special episode. This is Monday, October 31st. And we're going to be covering the 1980s Satanic Panic. And with that, we will be talking about the role-playing game Dungeons and & Dragons. And, we and might we'll have a probably little... be in costumes. I was just going to say, we might have a little surprise for y'all. So make yeah, sure you turn in for that one. we might or might not. Um, so yeah, um, again, we'd like to thank you for joining us tonight. And make sure that you... Um, like and subscribe on YouTube. Oh, Salween, thank you so much. Um, I always know I pronounced that incorrectly. Thank you, Shelly, for correcting me on that. Salween, not Sam Hain. Um, awesome. I'm glad it's going to be a lot of fun. So we look forward to it. Rick and I are both avid D and D players ourselves, so we're going to have a lot of fun with that one. Um, yeah. And well, also the. Uh I've I've always uh been uh that Alice Cooper song Halloween be that name. <laughs> I love anything by Alice Cooper. Sorry, big fan. And um, so we ask that you, if you're watching us on YouTube, hit that um, like and subscribe and hit that notification. And if you are listening to us on Facebook, join our Facebook group, Skeptic Psychic. Um, we also ask if you are listening to this later on on Apple Podcasts or anywhere else podcasts are found, make sure you rate us. Give us how many stars? Un, deux, trois, quatre, cinq, étoiles. Five stars, um, but we'll take whatever you give us. Make sure you leave us a review also. We will read reviews on air. Not so four, that'll be a good five. way to get a shake. Uh, that'll be a good way to get a, a shout out. Sorry, my tongue is getting tied. Uh, Twenty-five stars. Thank you, Shelly. <laughs> and if you have anything you'd like to share, any stories or any antidotes, you can always email us at info at skepticpsychic.com. And anything else to add before we close out tonight? Uh, we love you. Yes, and we do. We look forward to seeing you on the 30th to hear the wonderful origins and stories that are situated around the great holiday of Halloween. Halloween. And good night, everybody. Sweet dreams. Good night. Unpleasant nightmares. <laughs>